Hello, everyone, and welcome back to today's episode of Remedial Studies. We had a brief hiatus for uh, a fortnight. We are finally back um, and recording something. First off, I am I am going to apologize because I am a bit sick. I am going to sound a bit stuffy throughout this recording. You hopefully will not hear the hacking, oh god, I have the vapors, coughs that I have been having, because <laughs> we will fix that in post. Um, but today, we are finally, finally, finally talking about Tomi Adeyemi's debut novel, Children of Blood and Bone. I am also joined, as always, by my lovely co-host, Hannah. This episode has been in the works for almost a month, I think. Yeah. <laughs> what happened, guys, is I had a family emergency as we were recording this episode. I don't know. Was it been two weeks now? Yeah, it was about two weeks ago. And I have just been kind of dealing with and helping other people deal with that. So I'm kind of glad to get back to some normalcy and, and do something really fun uh, with someone I enjoy very much. Oh, I enjoy you too. It feels good to get back into like prep and recording and stuff because uh, it it, it was weird. I didn't really realize how much I kind of missed doing it until we didn't do it for like two weeks. Right. (laughs) But shall we begin at the beginning as we always do? Uh, Do you want me to try to give a brief summary? I can try. We know I'm not great at the brevity situation, but I think it's been so long since I read this that I I will have no choice but to yes. be brief. Give us the Cliff Notes version. All right, Cliff Notes version. No copyright infringement intended. Oh, it's Cliff Notes with a K. I'm going to rip off the McElroy's. Cliff Notes. <laughs> Uh, so this book, Children of Blood and Bone, is kind of set in, like, a fantasy Africa. Like, all the, one of the things that's great about it is that all the characters are brown, so that's new and different (laughs) for a lot of fantasy. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty excited to see um, an African-influenced fantasy. I think this takes a lot from Yoruban culture. I mean, they speak... Yoruba, Yoruban at points, right? Yes. So that's really cool. So instead of like medieval Europe fantasy, we have kind of like fantasy with a different cultural background. And it looks fundamentally different, which I think is awesome. Mm-hmm. But it basically follows this girl who is part of basically, I don't know if they're really a minority, but it's a situation where the ruling class has said that people that have the potential to be magi, which are magic users, they look different. They have white hair. Uh, and I think maybe a particular eye color I'm not remembering so clearly now. Yeah, I, I don't remember if it was eye color in particular. I know Zaylee's eyes are mentioned, like she has silver eyes, but they all have white hair and they typically, um, and we'll get into this a little bit later, or I want to, is um, they typically have a much darker brown skin mm-hmm. than the ruling class. Right. So basically, the ruling class has subjugated these people, and there's no magic anymore. Because the issue was that they were too dangerous and too powerful, and they were abusing their power. According to the ruling class, we never really get clarification on what exactly happened. 
two generations ago. Like, we have a pretty firm handle by the end of the book on what's going on this generation and what happened the previous generation. But the, like, grandparent generation is a little bit fuzzy what exactly happened to make Mm -hmm. this political situation happen, where they're being forced into, like, labor camps and labor gangs. And Zaylee, um, her family, her mom was a magi and her dad was not. So her brother is of the other group and she's of this um, subjugated group. And basically, like, she's trying to stay out of trouble so that she doesn't get taken and put into these forced labor camps where she will be worked to death. But what happened was when Zaylee was a, a child, all of the magi who were in their power were killed. So there's really no one under, like, 18 that is in this group anymore because uh, they were all killed. What happens is Zaylee runs into the princess who's escaped the castle uh, with a sacred artifact that can bring magic back. And then it's kind of them going on this quest with her brother. (laughs) There ends up being three magical artifacts that they have to get. And then they have to get to a special location that only exists like during, it's like an eclipse or something is crazy. Mm -hmm. Some crazy solar thing is happening. And do the ceremony and they'll bring back magic. And then all of the little baby, I think they're called diviners divinity diviners diviners they're called diviners i wanted to pronounce it the french way which is probably wrong um yes (laughs) (laughs) so that that's what they're called diviners are just the group of people and then magi are people who get their magic but they never get their magic because it turns out king sauron i want to say sauron because that's the big bad in Um, sauron sauron you're so close so close he he basically, like, severed their connection to the gods, which is, like, awful. Yeah. Uh, that That's a good summation of his character. <laughs> just awful. It turns out, because of the circumstances, Zaylee is the only person who can perform this ritual, and a bunch of stuff happens, and the prince, which we're probably going to talk about a lot, mm-hmm. the princess... Amari goes with Zane and Zaylee to get the artifacts and get Zaylee to this magical island so she can perform this ceremony, and that's their main thing. And then their brother, Anan, has been indoctrinated by their their father that diviners can't be trusted, that the power that they had before was bad and needed to be taken away, and that magic is evil and the root of all corruption, and so on and so forth. But he and Zaylee end up forging this bizarre (laughs) romantic relationship and he kind of goes back and forth and it turns out that he himself uh has magic he touches the scroll which brings back any of the diviners who touch it 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 gives them their magic back but it's temporary if the ceremony isn't completed basically he has a big identity crisis can't decide anything And it basically leads to tragedy Hamlet style. Yes, very, very much so. (laughs) And at the very end of the book, they perform the ceremony. It's crazy. Like, I legitimately, this is how well, I think this speaks to how well written it was. There was a second where I'm like, maybe this book, because like you assume they're going to succeed. That's how these work, 
right? Yeah, that's that's how this the the archetype of this story works. But there was a time where I'm like, maybe it won't. <laughs> oh yeah, that, that that was a big thing that I experienced throughout the whole book. Tomi Adeyemi is very good at manipulating that. Okay, but there's too much book left feeling. Yes. Because <laughs> I got it so much over the course of, of the book. Because there's several, there's like highs and lows throughout the whole course of the story. Because a big part of of the story is that they have to do this ritual and there's a really, really strict time limit because of the fact that they need to go to this place that's only visible and findable during this eclipse. And there's several points throughout the book where you're like, hey guys, can you like hurry the fuck up? Because you're kind of you're kind of lollygagging. Because of course they have to face obstacles. Because you have to. Like you know what I really liked, and I, and I I think this might be a fun place to start. This this episode has the the usual disclaimer we always have, where we we are both young white ladies, and I do not believe I have ever read a book that was just black people. Yeah, I don't I mean- think I've ever read it, <laughs> especially not one that was designed for kids. Mm-hmm. Because th- that that's a huge thing that I, that I think is now being included in the whole like you know let kids see stories about themselves. And I know and I know Adiyemi has spoken about this several times about how she like spent most of her childhood writing, but she looked back on it recently and there was like I never included a character that was like me because you if you never see it you assume it's not allowed, right? Which is not true. Yeah. I think we've made a lot, and I say this again as a white lady, that I think that we've made prog- we've made progress, and I'm starting to see a lot more people of color, people of different religious backgrounds, people talking about different experiences that I just did I don't remember seeing before, and I think it's delightful that we're finally here, and it's so overdue and i know there's been a lot of resistance to it which sucks like they had the sick puppy incident at the hugos a couple of years ago because people probably got a bee in their bonnet about needy okafor just like killing it mm-hmm. just killing it i haven't read anything by her yet i, really, I saw really an ad for to. that the other day and i think we need to i think we need to read her books yes it's just it's a really long series <laughs> it's so long but yeah, I, I totally agree with that. It, it's something that is so overdue and is so obvious in hindsight. And it's also something I'm, I'm taking um, a class right now for my master's. It's all about the rhetoric um, that was employed by women during the women's suffrage movement in the United States. And there's so many points we've gotten so far that talks about the intersection in that movement between race and gender. We have one textbook that's all about black women and like all this like speeches people made and all this other stuff and i was reading through it the other day and i was just like you don't know who these people are because they're so overshadowed and if you don't know who they are you it's easy to be manipulated to think to thinking well that's just not a thing that happened so that kind of person never speaks up or whatever and it's not true just because you don't see something doesn't mean it's not there we can all, by now, I think we know that history got written by a certain group of people who thought certain things were important, and just because they didn't write about it and we didn't learn about it in school doesn't mean that, one, it didn't happen, two, it wasn't important, and three, that, like, we need to, like, make a concentrated effort to, like, 
correct our own ignorance and one read more people mm-hmm. that are different than us and two like learn about these important women and and people from history that got overlooked for either unintentionally due to like just not caring or like in an intentional way to prevent that from you know bearing fruit so to speak does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that makes sense. And I think how that ties into how I read this book. For each of the characters in the book, if they're a diviner, that can manifest into many, many, many different kinds of magi. And Zaylee is a reaper. Like, she has power over life and, like, spirits of death and all that fun stuff. Inan's power manifests as he is a, I believe they're called connectors. Yeah, it's a really weird kind of magic. It's so invasive. He he has this, <laughs> he has power over over the mind essentially, and like he can read people's minds. And he he's kind of like a joint telepath, empath, X Men type situation where he can see people's thoughts and feel their emotions. The party gets split at one point where where Zane and Amari are taken to this bandit camp that is all diviners who have been awakened and. Zaylee and Inan have to think they're going to go rescue them uh, in in true adventure hijinks style. They're kind of working through how they feel about each other. And Inan has, is starting to get to a point where he's kind of realized his dad's wrong. But up until that point, he had like 100% drank the Kool-Aid, bought wholesale stock in this idea that like, well, the Magi needed to get taken down and my dad needed to do what he did. Because if you don't, um, there's a lot of very similar rhetoric that's used on both sides where it's like, well, the only way to keep your power is to stop the other people you're trying to fight from having it. Right. (laughs) I don't really know how I feel about that because there's an absolutism to that that ultimately proves infeasible, especially... Um, Because at the end of the book, it's kind of implied that the ritual Zaylee completes gives everyone magic. Yeah. And that's a big thing in like, with, like, Anon and Saran and all this other stuff is, like, well, one solution is to get rid of magic. And this other one, apparently, is to just give it to everybody. Right. Because the whole book, we see, we kind of see two options, is that... The diviners get their magic back or they don't. So it's like half the people get magic and half the people don't or no one gets magic. Yeah. And the answer to that is there's always a third option. Mm-hmm. And it's that everyone gets magic. We think maybe it's a cliffhanger. It's not totally clear exactly. We're extrapolating from the cliff ending. Yeah, because the, over the whole course of the book, it now of course feels obvious in hindsight, but over the course of the book, <laughs> it is questioned several times why Inan, who has no diviner blood in his family that he knows of, would manifest power. And Amari uh, is the character at the end that Zaylee wakes up after this blood ritual and she thought she was dead and she saw her mom and I cried. And she sees this white streak in Amari's hair that wasn't there before. And that's the outward sim- symbol of, of magic that exists in um, Arisha. I'm very excited for the next book. I am Because too. I want to know what happens. 
Yeah, it's a major cliffhanger. Because you know they're going to have to deal with the political fallout, whatever it is. You know that whether magic comes back or it doesn't, or if it comes back to everyone, question mark, there's going to be consequences that these characters have to deal with. I think one of the interesting questions that the book raises is this idea of, like, someone having too much power. There's even times where Zaylee questions whether or not every single diviner should be trusted to have these really powerful magic abilities because she sees the the danger that can occur when the powers go out of control. And a lot of it is kind of not fair to the diviners because, you know, their parents were all killed off. All the older generations that would have helped them grow into their powers naturally and, like, have taught them how to control their power are dead. Yeah. (laughs) So they're at a disadvantage. But I, I think it's a question of, like, you can't just keep power in good people's hands. You can't control that. So I think that's the question is like, can should we have this power out in the world? How do we regulate it? Should it be regulated? And ultimately, what we're thinking the answer is, is that if everyone is equally empowered, perhaps we can come to some kind of resolution. Yeah, I'm going to be interested to see what, if any, answers are given to those those questions because it's a planned trilogy. So there's going to be at least two more books. Because I, I really think the overarching question that sort of takes place in conversation between several characters is the place of power in society, like when and how it should be used and against whom. <laughs> Always against. That's one of the other things. That's the things. Every kind of power we see in this book aside from something like there's healers in 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 the magi but not everybody has those abilities all the power that we see used in the book is used against someone else and we're told throughout the course of the book that is not how it was for a long time a thing i find it i found interesting as far as like a technical writing standpoint is the choice to write the book in alternating first person yeah because there's multiple narrative characters there's Zaylee, I believe it's just Zaylee, Amari, and Anon. I think so, yes. Are the three sort of voice characters. And I think that's kind of fun to play with because then you can get sort of into and outside of everybody's heads and see where they're at, which was very helpful for me because I got very frustrated with Anon. I got frustrated <gasps> with everybody, but Anon, Anon I think is the one I want to start with. Yeah, we, because uh, we wanted him to be Zuko. We, there was hope that he would have that redemption arc. And it was not meant to be. I guess my whole thing with Anon is, and thank you for reminding me that I wanted to talk about this, is that he reminds me a bit of Hamlet in that he has this (laughs) sort of... Because Hamlet is most famous for posing the question to be or not to be. The thing is, he never actually answers that question. The character who does answer that question in Hamlet is Ophelia. And Hamlet has that choice made for him when he is killed by Laertes. Inan goes through a very similar thing where he struggles and he struggles and he struggles, but ultimately cannot make a real decision. He is constantly puts himself in this position where he wants there to be a third option where like 
nothing really has to change. Mm-hmm. And that he, I think what really frustrated me with him is that he would not let go or even really come to terms with his father's position in things. Yes. <laughs> 11 years before the beginning of this book, there was something that was called The Raid, and it's like capital R, The Raid, where in essence, a genocide against Mag- Magi was, was right. instigated right. and carried out by King Saron. Even when he looks into Zaylee's head and, like, sees the personal ramifications of that and, like, how she is still dealing with her mother's death and how it happened and why it happened, he still cannot really see the Magi and the Diviner perspective. Or he he can't validate it to himself. And I think that was what was most frustrating to me. Yeah. Is that he goes through most of the book still believing his voice is the most important and that's not how you get meaningful conversation in those situations yeah he always struck me as the kind of person who never knew when to listen yeah and i think it also speaks to like how when you're in a position of privilege and how if you've never experienced that because there's this scene where he goes in her head and he sees how much fear is in her life and how afraid she is every day and just the depth of her grief. And he's like, she can't be this scared. Like, he's taken aback by how much fear there is just in her existence. And I think there is no way that you can make yourself understand that when you're coming from this very privileged position. And I think One, I think that's why you should kind of just listen to people when they tell you about their feelings and what they need from you, because there is sort of limits to empathy and that you should have enough respect for another person, right? To like, be like, okay, like, this is your life and I'm going to listen to you. That's what I would want if, (laughs) you know, if I had a unique situation, but we don't do that. I think we trivialize other people's experiences. Because we're not experiencing them. And just because you can't conceptualize it doesn't mean it didn't happen. I think Anon kind of gets to that point. Like, he's like, wow, I can't. There's no way I'm ever going to understand this. Even though, like, I'm literally in her head. But his problem is, like, he just can't let go of his father. Like, he's so desperate for his father's approval and love. And the fact that, like, his father hates diviners and magi, he just can't he suppresses his magic and it hurts him which i think is like you can't suppress part of yourself and like be okay uh and then at the end in the most tragic hamlety thing that happens in the whole book is that anon um stops one of the people on zaylee's side from so basically he uh anon first tries to sabotage the ceremony like he makes the ultimate one of the ultimate sacrifices to he draws Zaylee's anger and gets one she gets her to destroy one of the artifacts before the completion of the ceremony and then like he's kind of dying like it's implied he's in real bad shape or like he barely escaped with his life but he sees his father is about to get struck down by one of the people on Zaylee's side And he uses his magic reflexively to save his father's life. And when his father realizes that his son, you know, is a magi, he instantly just turns his sword against Anon, and that's how Anon dies. Yeah. And it's, like, the saddest thing, because this 
whole time, like, you really want a non to, like, get it together. And it's like, there's no easy answer. Even Anon realizes that he's totally complicit in this subjugation of these people, and he's not sure that he can participate in any kind of effort at reclamation because of his sort of guilt and passivity in the current situation. And I think that's a really salient point these days. (laughs) Yeah, I agree with that. I think Anon was an important character to have in this narrative, as frustrated as I got with him. And I think it was important to have his sister, Amari, be that person who consistently makes decisions and sticks to them. I think it's her even at some point where she she is kind of like backs Saley up and is like, he's going to kill you. It's not a matter of if our father is going to kill you. He will kill you when he finds out this is a thing you can do because he is so blinded by his own hatred and we never really find out what happened to saran to make him like that he claims that magi killed his family and somehow anon is like okay that totally justifies genocide (laughs) (laughs) right your personal your personal grief justifies societal ramifications like sorry you're not that important even if you are a king yeah and it it also comes out that he was married and he probably had kids and he never got over it yeah he never got over it and that's not to say you should quote unquote get Get over over it it. if something like that happens but when the problem becomes when the kind of power he wielded went unchecked yeah in a similar way he claims the magi do right and amari just rejects this narrative that he's constructed wholesale oh yeah i love amari (laughs) (laughs) yeah and at first i think that there's this perception that she's weak but i think over the course of the book everyone and amari herself sees how strong she is for not engaging in some of the more violent behaviors that she could have especially at the palace yeah, cause she sees her um, her handmaid that she's known her entire life and who she does not view as a servant. Like, she views her as a friend. And her friend turns out she's like a lighter or something, I think. I th- It's something similar. But they, originally the scroll is in the possession of King Saran. And he essentially uses her, her handmaiden, who is a diviner, to test it and then immediately kills her. This poor girl knows this is coming the whole time which is even worse and amari like in that immediate moment is like okay i know what i have to do i have to steal this scroll and i have to find someone who's going to help me even like that choice is so much more direct action than anon is ever capable of making yeah anon is really forced into a very reactive position because of his inability to like decide on something and, like, he he hits all kinds of positions, like, direct opposition, he's totally on their side, he's kind of hoping for some kind of, like, middle ground, and ultimately, like, no decision happens. Yeah. Even at the end, when he tries to destroy magic, he ultimately ends up using it to save his father, and then is killed. <laughs> yeah. I think I knew something bad was going to happen to him. I didn't know if it was going to happen in this book, but it was going to happen when he didn't 
really do anything when Zaylee was in prison. Yeah, that was the thing, because there's this sequence, and it's the hardest, I think it's the hardest to read in the entire book. Oh, it was rough. I didn't have, I know, Rachel, you took breaks, but I was under the gun deadline-wise to read this for a couple of weeks ago, and I had to push through, and it was so difficult because they poison her so that her magic is blocked, and then they carve the word maggot into her back. That's one of the things about this book, and I think it's really intentional. The violence is incredibly graphic. Oh, yeah. All the way through. There are no punches pulled. And I'm cheating because I read an article (laughs) (laughs) where Adeyemi talks about how police brutality is a thing in this book, even though it's a fantasy novel. And I think we consider police brutality to be, like, a modern, like, not fantastical thing. But you can, it's fantasy. You can put whatever you want there. There are people who are like, you can't have that in fantasy. Make me so mad because it's fantasy. Yeah. It's made up, homie. It's made up. Yes. But anyway, I think you see a lot of police brutality type things in this book and it's i think really well done you see it through zaylee's perspective how she's treated by the guards because she's in this minority group she's treated as an object if she gets a little bit older she's worried about being sexually assaulted they push her around they don't talk to her well there's this exchange that she has with anon where like anon's like no the guards are good like i've known so many guards that are good and like Oh, yeah, that that was so transparent, and I love yes. it. Because <laughs> people are like that. You know, the people I know aren't like that. And it's like, you are never seeing these people in the context that Zaylee is seeing them. Because you're not in that group. So they're not going to treat you how they treat that group. So you might never see it. You might never be aware that this is highly situational behavior. And there are people like that. That's a real thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that's a real thing we are dealing with right now. In reading this book, I was reminded of a conversation we actually had when we talked about Shape of Water, low many months ago, where we talked about transparency of symbols and metaphors in media and how there's like, a, I don't know if it's a trend or just like a thing people like or think they ought to like, where stuff has to be difficult to see or work through. Like you have to work to see the meaning of it. And I think we kind of landed on of like, no, if you're going to say something, say it loud. Yeah, I mean, I don't think subtlety and like hidden meaning are necessarily bad. I think they're right. overhyped. That's a, yes, that 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 I think is, is ultimately the point is when that becomes the only thing that's sort of legitimized, I think it's easy to see a book like this where it is, it is very intentional, like, and it's constructed in a very intentional way where like, You have these characters who are sort of like the the three sides to this argument of, okay, well, who's involved and what should we do about it going forward? And you have the conversations Zaylee and Anon have about, like, the police brutality and how, like, the internal conversations Zaylee has where she goes back and forth on, like, okay, but is more power the answer? But how are we going to do anything if we don't have power? Like, how will we make them respect us? There's something to be said about that as as a legitimate way of storytelling and furthermore why are we arguing about what way to tell a story is legitimate (laughs) yeah it's definitely i mean hmm (laughs) 
I don't think there's any easy answer to that question. It's just something that I've been thinking about. I, I think I think any art form, you mentioned this earlier in our production meeting, t-shirt, copyright, Um, is every kind of art form. We went through this with novels when women were the only people who were writing it. And then it became legitimized, unfortunately, when men started writing them. And is every art form goes through a period where they want to be seen as legitimate. But I, I think it's more important to take a step back and being like, what does that mean? And why do we care? Not not only as like creators, but also as like consumers. Because I, I think I ha- I, I've stepped away. I did not read any reviews of this book before I read it. I still haven't read any reviews because I kind of don't care. But also because like I know what I think about it. I know what my opinion is on it. It might change if I read it again. I want to read it again. But it's the whole thing of this is a very hot button topic anymore. And it frustrates me that it is this whole thing of like forcing diversity, uh, heavy air quotes. You did not see them, but I tried to imbue them into my voice. And this was a problem, I think, with video games a lot longer before it was it's now become a much more discussed thing now. Yeah, I mean, though, side note, Comicsgate, quote unquote, <laughs> did just happen right that like did, i didn't make that, that up did you hear about someone tried to make D gate a thing and everyone was like we're sitting in circles playing pretend shut up <laughs> good nobody gave that the time of day yeah comics gate did, did just happen it's so infuriating because it ultimately shows how so many people think that their voices are the most important and also that there is like like there's a quota you fill and like this far and no further right because otherwise then it's just unrealistic and usually it's it's not it's like all those studies that were done in in colleges years and years ago about the male perception of how much women speak when the reality is women speak a much smaller percentage than men do right (laughs) and then when women speak the same amount as men men thought they were speaking more than them yes exactly it is exactly like that and it is infuriating because we know it's happening we know why it happens and we still can't seem to move forward on what to do about it other than to laugh at people on twitter which i'm always all about right i mean i hope that the actual increase of diverse books that we've been seeing is a good sign that we're moving Mm -hmm. in a healthier direction and that soon it will become normal and we won't have to have this conversation over and over and over again. But I'm willing to keep telling people like, no, this is good. I'm really excited to see these people and to hear these stories that aren't like my story and to just kind of be like, no, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, and say that as many times over and over yep. again as I have to. Say it loud and say it proud. I think my thing is, and I think I, I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast, about how I like seeing stories and reading stories about people who maybe I can't really relate to, but I can still sympathize with. Because I, I, I think those are two different things. Right, we talked a lot about that with monstrous not necessarily maybe culturally speaking but as like character wise yeah because i i couldn't really relate to make like at all throughout the whole course of that i'm like this these are not the decisions i would be making but i do i did sympathize with her 
And and I think that's an important point to make with this book is that I did not choose to read this because I thought it would relate to my story. That is not the reason I picked it up. The reason I picked it up is because I wanted to get at the story this book looked like it was going to tell, regardless of its relationship to me. And I think, uh, I think you're right. I think having those stories where you can see outside of yourself, because I think that's a really important thing to do, even just in your daily life, is to just recognize that there's people's existences and stories that are not yours and that your experience is not universal and to learn more about the experiences of other people. I think that is only a good thing. For sure. For sure. (laughs) I feel like the more that you read and the more that you get out of like whatever box that you're in, because I'm going to be really honest, I haven't read as many women and people of color as I should have been doing. And it's taken me actually being like, wait, Hannah, Hannah, fix this. (laughs) And I don't know, I'm thinking about not reading any white men for like one year. People talk about doing that. Like, it's not like I'll never read a white man's book ever again. It's just like, I'm gonna take a year to catch up on everything. Because Goodreads has a thing where you can like see a list of all the authors you've read. And mine is, to be fair, like, Terry Pratchett writes a lot of books. <laughs> See that? Yeah, that's me. Like, <laughs> I'm reading... I, I read a lot of Neil Gaiman and a lot of Terry Pratchett. Yeah, like. same. But I think, like, a year off, except for when we do the Discworld stuff. See, and then now I'm even like, we can make exceptions. We can make it work. I, I think that's a good idea, because that was a complaint. I've actually... I've seen this in action, actually. Um, this was many, many years ago. Um, when I was doing my undergrad... And I took a fiction writing workshop, loved the people in it, loved them. They were great. Our professor, however, (laughs) was, I used to think people like this man were just a stereotype. No, no, they exist in the wild, people. He thought he could teach us how to write by watching Woody Allen movies. Oh. And we did not read, I shit you not, we did not read a single author that was not a white dude the whole semester yeah. and all of us kind of looked at each other and collectively went we are writing only genre fiction for this person <laughs> and we are shoving as much diversity in it as we can muster because fuck you like it was oh, oh man. nothing brings people together like hating the same person guys nothing it's interesting to me like what ends up in the canon and i was glad when i took my canonicity class that we actually read things, like we read Frederick Douglass's book, and we read a book by, uh, it was called Woman Warrior, I don't remember her name, and I'm very sorry that I don't, but it's about being Asian American, and it's sort of like a memoir slash retelling of Mulan, I think? I don't know, I'm just glad that we had that mixed into the canonicity class because we also read like Shakespeare uh because when you talk about the canon you have to talk about Shakespeare I guess yeah we also talked about science fiction and its place in the canon but you know we had some diverse voices in there which I think is really good because people have been fighting about this for umpty years and I think we're finally gaining some traction on the diversity thing 
I think there's this idea that the cannon is only allowed to be so large. Yeah. Or it's not exclusive enough. And people are like, well, we're going to have to kick something out in order to make room for this. And when I hear that turn into the Obama then perish meme, (sighs) but (laughs) I could also make the argument that Technically, we don't have to kick anything out. You just sort of made up this idea that it can only be so large without, you know what I mean? Like, I still think it can be exclusive, in air quotes, and have more people in it. And, like, who gets to decide the size? Like, why Why is it you? Why do you get to decide how big the cannon is? Who put you in charge? Yeah. You specifically. Yeah, that, that's something I've been thinking about, because I mentioned on the podcast, that is, like, my goal is I want to be one of those academics that talks about the cannon and stuff like that. That's something I think it's important to be critical of, is the whole concept of the canon. It's convenient, of course, but, like, convenient to whom? Like, who does it really benefit other than whoever writes, like, the AP English exams? There's this whole concept, and I think you touched on this because you're talking you're talking about how it's so restrictive. There's this whole concept that in order for you to gain anything, something it's like Full Metal Alchemist. They think that in order for you to gain anything, something of equal exchange must be given away. And why? Yeah, we made it up. Like, it's pretend, yeah, essentially. It's like how I just want a t-shirt that says <laughs> all words are made up when people make fun of slang. Everything is made up. We decided, okay, well, I say we, because I, I sure as shit am sure women were not involved in this decision, but <laughs> a group of people over the course of however long it was, decided this is how this is going to be. And we are just now questioning that. Why not just start from scratch? Why not ask that question? Why do we have a canon to begin with? Didn't you guys have an assignment where you were like, you advocated to add something and advocated to take something out? Our assignment was to make up a canon for a particular genre of thing. So one student, she did hers on, I guess there are like just a ton of cheesy Korean romantic drama comedy things. I'm not even sure. Yeah, K-dramas? Yeah, she did hers on K-dramas. That's bitching. (laughs) Yeah, and I did mine on cartoons from like 1990 to 2010. (gasps) That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Because I wanted, I wanted the spectrum to go from, like... Because, like, I had to include Spongebob, even though I don't really, like, necessarily like Spongebob. I mean, I do, like... I can't, like, sit here and pretend, like, I don't think Spongebob is funny. Like, I'm not gonna front and be like, I'm above <laughs> Spongebob. Because I'm a millennial. None of us are above Spongebob. No, none of us are. But I'm not gonna sit here and be like, this is... a I don't know. I just, I have mixed feelings about Spongebob. You've learned that about me today. I kind of went from, like, the highly episodic, there's no continuity between episodes, into the evolution of something like uh, Avatar The Last Airbender, Mm -hmm. which is, like, the pinnacle of animated storytelling. Let's be real. (laughs) Yeah, let's just all be real. That, like, that is the peak. That is what it, that's what it's just going to be. I still get so fucked up when I think about Avatar. Yeah, and we can tie it back in, 
even to this book because, wow, I, my personal canon ties in with <laughs> Adeyemi's, I guess, because she's a big fan of Avatar The Last Airbender, right? Yeah, she's a big fan of Avatar. She's a big fan of anime, both American and Japanese, I believe. And it's, it is interesting to look back on this book knowing that because you can kind of see it. Oh, yeah. A little bit. I mean, I was thinking it while I was reading it, and then you told me she's a fan of Avatar The Last Airbender, and I was like, I see it, I respect it, and I like it. Yeah, because there's, like, the sibling characters, the character that it has to, but in this case, ultimately fails, to break away from the oppressive structure he was born into, and the the character who has to become this savior through unlocking their power that existed in stories before avatar and will exist after as evidence but like that was the pinnacle you know why non failed there's one character missing from this book it's uncle iroh <gasps> they didn't have an uncle iroh because all of that generation was wiped out and that's i feel like the difference between zuko and and anon Anon really needed an Uncle Iroh, and he just didn't have one. He needed that person who was going to help him through the situation and love him unconditionally, but, like, not deal with his shit. It's too bad. It is too bad. Rest in peace, Uncle Iroh. I'm always looking for that Zuko-level redemption arc. I know. They spoiled us. They gave us standards. Here's the other thing about Avatar The Last Airbender, is that it also features... A diverse cast in a fantasy setting influenced by a non-Western culture. This is very true. It's interesting and it's successful and it's this different perspective and a different, I don't know, like, those stories can be just as successful as quote-unquote traditional fantasy and I'm glad to see them getting some respect and much-deserved accolades and success yeah i i think ultimately that's what what we're headed towards is we need to it's the whole thing of like if you view the common analogy is that like any industry is is like a table and you have to make room at the table why don't we just get a bigger table or better yet why don't we just all go outside and have a picnic right exactly or we're not limited by the number of seats people have brought Yes, the table is a construct. We made up the table. Go outside. Okay, robots, that will just about do us for today. I am here with your outro and various and sundry announcements. So this is going out on the 18th. And uh, I don't know if you're aware, but Rachel and I are very aware that our one-year anniversary of the podcast is coming up in October, and... That's weird to think that we've been doing this for a year. I can't I can't really believe it. Time is weird, people. Yeah. Yeah, I can't believe it's been a year. What a year. But here's, here's what we're going to do. Because it's our one-year anniversary, because we love you, and that's it. Those are the only two reasons. Here, here's our <laughs> schedule for October. October 2nd, we're going to do uh, Hosier's uh, Nina Cried Power EP. We're stoked that Hosier's back from the bog. Yes. Uh, the Fae have relinquished him. Okay, and then we're going to take a break on the 9th. And then we're going to do I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which is 
a true crime book about the Golden State Killer. Uh, and then we're going to do Sadie on the 23rd, which is a YA thriller about true crime and podcasts. Are you are you getting what we're putting down? And finally, yes, there will be a fourth episode in October. Uh, and you know, we couldn't, we made it a whole year without doing this movie, but we can contain ourselves no longer. So... For our one-year anniversary episode, we're doing Crimson Peak, which Guillermo del Toro, uh, remedial studies alum, <laughs> it's happening, finally. I've been trying to re-listen to stuff as I've been trying to work on transcripts, and I think we promised this was going to be an episode back in, like, January. Like, it has been, it's going to be a full, full circle moment. Yeah, so four episodes is a lot, but... I think we're really excited that we made it a year. This is just something that we do for fun because we like each other and we like books and (laughs) movies and music and everything media. And so we're just going to celebrate that. And we thought that the way to do that would be a remedial studies extravaganza. And now I think what we'll do is Rachel will give our indie spotlight for this episode, and then I'm going to tell you our social media deets. Alrighty. Our spotlight this week is going to a friend of the show that we've actually, I think we've mentioned this lovely lady. She's a book blogger, and she's just out here killing the game, and she's at a little book life. That's her Twitter handle and her website, um, I believe is the same thing, it is a littlebooklife.com and she just she's all about those reviews and recommendations she's so nice she's belgian so if you like B- belgian people there you go <laughs> <laughs> i i like belgian people so here we go oh i gosh. like belgian waffles i love that... belgian waffles I like, <laughs> that's probably i, I like I, I like agatha christie's Poirot novels he's belgian i don't know but he she's very sweet and a super nice person and we enjoy that she enjoys the show and that's what our spotlight is for this week where can people find us hannah people can find us at remedial studies uh, on twitter we're at remedial studies podcast.tumblr.com for our tumblr and you can email us at remedial studies podcast at gmail.com and we also got an Instagram. Yeah. So we're on there. What is our Instagram handle? <laughs> we're just at Remedial Studies on Instagram as well. So that's what's up. That's it. We're done. We've talked too long now. So... Yeah, it's over. <laughs> what are you still doing here? <laughs> Bye, robots. Bye, robots. <laughs>